Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Hey everybody, this is Studio C41 and I'm Bill Manning and we are here for another one-on-one interview and uh, I saw this gentleman's work on Facebook. There is a fantastic Facebook group for film photographers uh, and it's called the Film Photographers Group and uh, it is a huge community of 40,000 people from around the world. It is amazing. Um, It's great to see uh, people that share their work from around the world. And uh, I discovered this gentleman's uh, work and uh, it's pretty special and I'm really excited to talk about it. So uh, this man needs no further introduction. His name is Mark Schneider. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing good, Bill. How are you doing today? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. So I, I want to dive straight into this because I'm, I, I've been sitting on this type of photography for a very long time. I got the film in the freezer and I saw your image post and I, I think a lot of people saw that image post actually. And, um, I just I was like, I need to talk to this guy and I want to learn more about this because there's just so many questions. And the film that I'm talking about is Aerochrome. And um, so I don't know, Mark, can you kind of give us a like a just a quick brief description of, as far as what exactly is Aerochrome? Yeah. Uh, so in a nutshell, Aerochrome is a what's known as a false color infrared film. Um, that's um, <clears throat> That is, it was originally designed as an areographic film. So what I mean by that is uh, the film initially came in bulk rolls that were about, I think, about 10 inches wide by about two to 400 feet long. And they were loaded into these large, massive cameras mm. that were uh, in planes. And they were flown usually, I think, about 10,000 feet above. And they would use these uh, cameras to photograph, um, you know, cityscapes, forests, uh, and it was utilized to determine the health of the vegetation, uh, whether it was in for a forest or in for a, um, a cityscape. Mm. Uh, primarily, what would happen is the, the red hues, I'm sure a lot of people have seen, sometimes the vegetation looks a little bit different. Uh, depending on the health of the vegetation, you, know, you have more chlorophyll, and that's what reflects into red light. So yep. the more... The more uh, the more healthy the plant, the more deeper the vibrant red is going to be. So that's how they that's how uh, forestry service and uh, you know, city planners and military and uh, law enforcement utilize the uh, utilize the film to determine the health of vegetation. And what I mentioned, uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, for people who are doing illicit activities in uh, in the woods, they would put like that fake netting up. And well, it might work for a cursory glance, but it won't show up the same color on infrared. So that's how they would be able to determine if someone was doing something they shouldn't be doing. Right. Um, that's actually that's actually something I found out a few years ago. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So that's, that's basically it in a nutshell. Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah, I you know I came across so I my introduction to uh, Aerochrome was uh, Richard Moss. And uh, mm-hmm. Richard Moss is a uh, fine art photographer who took some of this aerochrome 
and went into the Congo and and he, he did a series of images and I think he did some uh, motion picture as well with this film and uh, and it, it's been exhibited in several places in several museums and uh, um, and a, a lot of people that hear about Aerochrome and then they start to do a search will come up with Richard Moss. So he has some fantastic work um, um, and uh, some actually kind of intimidating images of uh, some of the guerrilla warfighters that are out there. So that, that was a, it was an, an in, very interesting and a very unique piece. And so uh, well, well done to him. So, but um, so I, w- I want to hear about like your story, man. So how did, how did you get into photography? Uh, I think I was about 10 or 11, was about 10 or 11 years old. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was poking around in the attic, like you know, all kids do when they're bored. And I found my dad's old film camera and I'm just going around quick, quick, quick. It was a Canon AE one and, uh, went and popped it open and realized there was still a roll of film in there and they automatically <laughs> shut it. So we actually, um, we actually took it in, got it developed. It turns out it was vacation photos from when I was six years old, and then my family went to Hawaii. So luckily, luckily, only a few frames got ruined. But uh-huh. um, uh, and then I think in high school, <clears throat> I had uh, you know we had to take an art elective, and I don't, I can't draw, and I don't like painting, so <laughs> photography. And yeah. at the time, my dad, my dad was actually um, um, going through cancer treatment, so that was a bit of a rough time for family. So sure. photography. Aside from having a natural affinity for it, it was also a means for me to, uh, it was like a creative outlet, uh, uh-huh. for me to express my, express myself. And it really, it really was tremendously helpful for me to get through that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, was, it was, yeah, it was just, it was just a huge thing for me. And, um, I think around that same time, my senior year in, uh, my senior year in high school, I actually did a college level, uh, photography course for high school students at a vocational school. Mm-hmm. And that's when I don't remember exactly how, but I found out about infrared film through my professor. Mm-hmm. So when I went to the film store to buy a roll of HIE, um, I'm at the store and they got everything in a fridge, uh, which is obvious. But then they had a section that was in a freezer, and that's where he pulled out the HIE. And I saw this other roll called EIR. I'm like, what's EIR? I was like, oh, that's color infrared film. But you really don't want to mess around with that. I said to him, why? Well, it's extremely temperamental with the temperature. You have to make sure everything's developed, you know, quickly and no variance. It's really, really finicky. So I actually had the opportunity to start shooting EIR back then, but I was kind of leery because he was just making all these warning, dire warnings that <laughs> you have to keep it absolutely, you know, uh, temperature safe. And I thought the same thing with the HIE. So I remember after I shot my first roll, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> I actually put it in an ice box in uh, like a like in a lunchbox with like a little ice because i'm just like i gotta keep it cool gotta keep it cool until i could get it over to my class get it developed i mean now uh yeah i mean you definitely need to keep a infrared film stabilized in a free uh, preferably if it's short term Mm -hmm. a fridge is fine meaning like you know a few days but if you're doing long-term storage it's the same thing if you're shooting if you want to save film you you have to keep it in a freezer because it's just it's it's full of the degradation of the film yeah, I, I know that um, this particular film is not um, doesn't have a very long shelf life in general, and um, I think the last bit of this particular this film has been long discontinued now. What was it like? Twenty eleven, twenty twelve is when the last batches were were sold. Yeah, yeah it's twenty eleven, according to uh, Dean. Okay, yeah, 
So uh, who is Dean? So um, I, I know who he is, but for the listeners, who is this uh, mystery man, Dean Benici? Dean Benici. Uh, he's found on email. Uh, he's based out of Germany, and he's pretty much, to the best of my knowledge at least, the only person that actively will um, sell and produce, or I should re- say repackage, Mm. Aerochrome into 120 and 4x5 format, and what he does is he basically scours all over the uh, all over the world, and you know it, whether it's government surplus or you know national park service or whatever the case is, and mm. if he finds rules uh, like I originally described that are in good condition, free, freezer kept, he'll buy it up, and then what he'll do is he'll hand cut and roll everything himself, which is an extremely laborious uh, process. Wow. So I know some people have said, well, you know, it's so expensive. And that's part of the reason why it's expensive is because he's hand-rolling himself. It's right. not like, you know, he's getting this from Kodak. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, and then of course, obviously the availability of the film, I mean, they don't make it anymore. So once it's gone, that's it. It's gone. There's right. no more. <clears throat> right. He, it's actually kind of funny. So he, uh, I follow him on uh, Instagram now. And uh, he is, uh, his too. Instagram handle is um, Aerochrome Source underscore, I think it is. I'll, yep. I'll have it in the show notes. Uh, so anybody, he's a solid follow. He has some great content that goes up there. And uh, um, I, I posted up a picture of some four by five. He's like, you know, I can, uh, you know, you can get that uh, aerochrome in four by five. I'm like, don't tempt me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting more and more into four by five. And um, the more I think about that uh, aerochrome, I'm really seriously considering and getting it in four by fives, which is what you're doing, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a mix yeah. of 4x5 and uh, 120 predominantly. My original attempts with Aerochrome, I actually got through a film photography project when they were selling it uh, in 35mm. Mm-hmm. Eventually, eventually moved off to the 35mm format, um, primarily just because the, you know, it, 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 at 35mm, Aerochrome is an incredibly grainy film. And, sure. I mean, it, the look was great for what I was doing at the time, but I liked the finer grain I got from 120 and mm. just... Um, you know, uh, just the results I got from, from Dean's stuff is a lot more consistent. Okay, cool. So, um, <clears throat> so you've been doing, uh, so the picture that you posted up, um, was, of uh, what was the location? That's Mount Vernon, Virginia. So that's actually George Washington's estate. Okay. Gotcha. So, and we'll have it in the show notes. I'll link it back to his Instagram of this image. It's a fantastic image. Um, uh, let's break it down. Let's, I know we're going to kind of get into the characteristics of Aerochrome and all that stuff here in a little bit. And, you know, uh, there, I'm sure people that are listening to this have so many questions and, um, and anything that we don't answer, uh, I highly recommend you get in touch to uh, with Dean. He has um, an, an amazing info sheet um, that he has put together that answers literally just about every single question that you would have about it. And I have the sheet here. I'm not going to share it uh, just simply because it is Dean's work. Um, so um, if you are truly interested in it, reach out to him and 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 talk to him um, about it. He's he's very very friendly um and uh, i think he will be uh, much more uh helpful than uh, i think what you mark and i will be able to provide so this guy knows um this film uh in and out so uh let's go back to the mount vernon uh george washington estate so uh break it down for me so um you clearly this film has to be loaded complete darkness um even the roll film um just simply because it's it's uh 
it's very sensitive to infrared light. So um, let's break down the shot. So how 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 would you load this up and and what did you do to expose it and all that stuff? Uh, well, just as a quick side note, we were also mentioning. I mean, if people have any questions, um, you know, I, they can feel free to reach out to me as well. I'll oh do, yeah, yeah. I'll certainly do the best I can to answer any questions. Dean's definitely the the master of this stuff. Um, I'm just you know a dutiful student, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, so, in terms of this, um, <coughs> excuse me. So, what uh, the way Dean has this cut is uh, there's not exactly a notch code with this. Well, there is no notch code with this. Oh. So what he does is he he trims a corner. And, you know, for those of you that shoot a large format, know that the notch code, when it's on the upper right hand corner of the film, that side, you know, is face, that's the emotion side. So you know, that they have that face uh, towards the camera. Okay. So, so he does, he follows the same thing. So unfortunately, uh, it's not the easiest to figure out. So sometimes I have to spend a couple minutes making sure I actually have that correct corner. Mm. Um, Aerochrome is a very thin film. So for anyone that shot film, the best analogy, I would say it's similar to Rollet's infrared film, not quite as flimsy, because mm-hmm. uh, that, that film drives me nuts when I'm trying to load that in a film holder, but similar flimsiness, and it has a natural curl because it's been, you know, spent all those years in a roll. So right. it's not too difficult to load, but yes, it, it has to be loaded in complete darkness. Its uh, sensitivity is up to, and if not exceeding 900 nanometers, which is... Uh, it's beyond what uh, Rolay and um, Ilford SFX can, can handle. So right. that's why they consider Aerochrome and HIE to be true infrared films. Um, <clears throat> but you know, once, it's in the, once it's loaded into the film holder, you're, you should be good. Obviously, if anyone's interested in getting involved with this, they should make sure with uh, some regular edits, like maybe just a box of, air, of uh, Rolay, do, just do some testing, bring it outside, keep, it, uh, keep everything uh, sealed up. Uh, just so you make sure there's no infrared light leaks. It's unlikely that's going to happen, but mm-hmm. better safe than sorry, especially considering how much aerochrome costs. You definitely don't want to waste a uh, film with that. Uh, as far as the shot itself goes, um, uh, that one was, so I used the Takahari of 4x5 field camera. That's my that's my film camera for choice when I'm doing large format. Mm-hmm. And it was a Nikon 135mm at a at 5.6. Now I think I basically what I did with that is in terms of metering because it was, it was right around two o'clock, so it was still pretty much high sunlight. So I basically mm-hmm. just did the 2016 with that. Oh wow! And uh, now for anyone that's not used to shooting uh, large format, f16 on 35 millimeter is usually a pretty good sharp depth and field. Mm-hmm. Not as much with large format. So uh, because <laughs> of the larger size of the negative, right. You, that's why you'll see a lot of people posting F22, F32, F45, F64. Mm. Uh, so I think that one I bumped it up to an F32 to make sure I had plenty of uh, depth of field. But um, aside from that, uh, use the polarizer to increase a little bit of the contrast and get like that slightly darker look to the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, use, an orange, uh, use an orange filter. Yeah. Now, here's the question that I, I see quite often with the the aerochrome, and so I kind of know the answer already. But for for the listeners and everything, we want to kind of provide them that information. So, different filters uh, produce different results. So, like for example, a, a common question that I see on here is, well, can I use an infrared filter like one of those? What is it? The um, Hoya 
uh, what is it, R72 or something like that. It, it's designed, that filter is designed for mm-hmm. infrared black and white, or, or excuse me, uh, yeah, for infrared black and white, but that's not necessarily mm-hmm. a good thing for ectochrome or, well, for aerochrome, right? Definitely not a good thing for ectochrome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for aerochrome, yeah, you're correct. So yeah. uh, the R72, that's basically like the, the, the standard infrared filter of choice, uh, yeah. whether it's for, you know, digital infrared film, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So with um, the way aerochrome is designed, <laughs> excuse me, the way the aerochrome has been designed is in order to get the infrared effect, you have to be able to filter out the blue light of the blue part of the visual spectrum. Mm-hmm. So at minimum, you need a yellow filter to an orange filter to a red filter. Somewhere, somewhere anything in that range will usually work. Mm-hmm. Uh, red filters, I tend to stay away from because results can be a bit more uh, inconsistent. Mm-hmm. depending on lighting conditions, uh, what kind of lens you're using, and more importantly, obviously, uh, the, the elevation, which I can get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, if uh, you go with the standard, I think it's like a yellow number nine or 21, I got the actual number on it, but just a standard yellow filter, mm-hmm. that will still get you the infrared effect. But what you'll get is you'll get a little less saturation and you're going to get a little bit more color detail in your foliage. So instead of just pure red, Mm-hmm. You'll see a little bit more of some pinks and some deep reds and not deep reds. So if you want a little bit more of a variety, then yeah, you definitely go with the yellow. The orange will get you more of an, it's a little bit higher contrast. I mean, obviously it's a high contrast filter to begin with. Sure. It does the same thing with aerochrome. Is it'll produce a little bit more contrast and it'll give you more intense uh, colors in terms of your reds and your blues. Mm-hmm. But you definitely don't want to use a normal black and white infrared filter while the film itself is sensitive past the 72 7, uh, 720 nanometer range um you're going to basically cut out your entire color spectrum so all you're going to have is essentially a monochrome image i've never actually tried it mm-hmm. um i'm just going based off of what i've read and from what dean has told me yeah so the best advice is do a yellow you can do an orange anywhere in that range and that'll get you the results you need. So the nice thing about that is you don't have to worry about closing everything, then putting the filter on, and then keeping your fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. You can actually use an SLR. You can use a medium format camera where you have a you know a prism viewfinder. You can use all that, and you'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. It, it's it's really cool. So I I got a, an an orange sixteen filter, and I felt like that's mm-hmm. probably going to be a safe bet for. Uh, just having uh, a little bit more contrast and then having some uh, some deeper, uh, I would say more like a magenta going towards the reds. Would you say that would probably be pretty accurate? Uh, fairly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the magentas and the pinks are going to be more more a result of the yellow filter and or the uh, the condition of the foliage. Because as I mentioned earlier, oh, yeah, that's true. depending on the health of the foliage or the grass will determine what color you're going to get. I remember I, I took a shot over in Arlington Cemetery, in the Arlington National Cemetery. It was uh, a friend of mine. Uh, her friend's son was killed in a chopper accident in Afghanistan. So I offered to do a yeah. uh, infrared photo uh, shot of his uh, grave site. So when I took the photo, the trees came out in nice, deep, vibrant red, and the grass had splotches of red. But for the most part, because it was in the middle of summertime and you know we were in a dry season at that point, uh, the, a lot of the, a lot of the grass was actually either a very, very, very pale pink to mm-hmm. a moderate pink to very pale red. So okay. that's, so that's, that's something that for people to keep in mind is 
you can't automatically assume that your grass and trees are automatically going to turn up this deep, vibrant red. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of it depends on the health of the veg- vegetation. Uh, okay, very, very good point. Yeah, I knew that. I just had completely forgotten that uh, the health of the vegetation. And I think then that's primarily one of the reasons why, like, I got this film uh, two rolls from Dean. I want to say back in uh, January. And I was like, you know what? I need to hold on to this because the a there's no trees or with leaves right now. And then all the grass is all brown. So I was like, I'm probably going to wait till summer to shoot this. And so um, we've had a very rainy season. So um, I think the, this coming weekend, I'm probably going to go ahead and head out there and, and shoot a roll just to see what it's like. Um, so, we covered the filters, we covered, you know, loading it and how you should handle this, this film. And, um, now out of curiosity, um, exposure on this. Um, so it's a 400 speed film. Are you supposed to uh, develop it at, or excuse me, are you supposed to expose it at 400 or should you overexpose it to get a different effect? Uh, what, what, what is it that you've kind of seen with what you've played with? Well, you know, excuse me. The interesting thing about Aerochrome is uh, your film speed depends actually on your elevation. So at ground level, yeah. So at ground level, typically it's an ISO 400. So Mm -hmm. you want you want to shoot it at box speed. You can if you're shooting on roll film, you can tinker with it a little bit. If you still manage to find some 35 millimeter uh, Aerochrome, Mm -hmm. that's probably going to be your best chance to be able to mess around with exposures, find what works best for you. Mm -hmm. But I believe for every thousand feet an increase in elevation, it's a decrease of your ISO by a third of a stop. So at 1,000 feet, you'd be looking at about, I think about a 320 ISO. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I was, uh, where was I? Shenandoah National Park, which is not far. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and it's not far Mm -hmm. uh, from there. But when I was at Skyline Drive, it was... Uh, two thirds of a drop in a stop. So I think I was pushing very close to an ISO 200 oh, when wow. I was up there. Now, I know people are listening to this and they're thinking, well, what does that do to the grain structure? Uh, doesn't change the grain structure, unfortunately. I was kind of hoping, no, maybe it'll have slightly finer grain structure when I shot it. No, it doesn't. No. Oh, uh, no. Unfortunately, unfortunately, as nice as that would be, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. But um, it's, it's just partly due to the fact that uh, the higher up you are, there's less filtration. So you need you need to be able it needs to be more sensitive to the infrared spectrum up up there. But yeah, usually if you're right around uh, sea level, 400 speed is usually pretty good. Okay, cool. Now I'm out of curiosity because um, they use this as like surveillance footage and stuff like that, and like from airplanes and helicopters. Do you do you know what they did if they were like in mid-flight shooting this kind of stuff, like? I, I could imagine like if you're up in an airplane, like I guess this wouldn't be something that they would use like in the spy planes or anything like that. Would they? No, probably not. Uh, okay. Um, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, okay. Typically with aerochrome, it was predominantly used. I mean, cause if you do, if you do a search online, sometimes you might find some old photos of um, cities uh, that were taken maybe like say 10,000 feet, 2000 feet, 3000 feet, that sort of thing. Yeah. And they would use that because they want to get an idea uh, if there's a major drought going on. Cause again, like I said, you know, depending on the health of vegetation will determine uh, mm-hmm. the shade. So if there was a bunch of areas that were pink as opposed to a deep vibrant red, mm-hmm. that's how they would know. Okay. So we've got an issue. We're in a drought right now. Uh, and that's, that's 
that was its primary use. Uh, in terms of law enforcement, like I said, if anything, does, if it doesn't have chlorophyll in it, it's not going to reflect infrared light correctly. Mm-hmm. So even if you paint something green, that's not necessarily an indication it's going to show up red. So that's why law enforcement and military would use it if they're trying to find uh, people that were uh, hiding in the woods or hiding in the forest, whether you know, moonshining or illegal marijuana or right. down in like South America and they're doing you know more illicit stuff like that. That was what they would use at the time. Now they actually they still use that same concept, but as I understand it, they actually switched over to uh, digital infrared for obviously cost purposes. Okay. You know, it's funny, uh, you mentioned that uh, there is an image that I believe Matt Stoffel put up and I'll, I'll have to double check cause I think it was in his like Instagram story. So I don't think it's there anymore, but there was a, uh, infrared image of, uh, Rockchester from really high up and, um, and it had all the characteristics of aerochrome. So I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Um, uh, mm-hmm. because it, it, you could see like the, the river streams were like really like a deep 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 blue or almost like a black um and then you saw the pink that was going around it and then you saw the the uh city infrastructure out of it so i need to reach out to matt and see if he can can share that image for this episode because it was a really cool image actually so yeah it's funny it's funny you mentioned that i actually lived in rochester for over 20 years (laughs) that's crazy but uh yeah the funny thing funny thing about just a side note the funny thing about uh living in rochester is uh up there, especially before Kodak started its decline, mm. mentioning the word Fuji was pretty much like blasphemous up there. So <laughs> nobody shot Fuji except for maybe like the serious, serious photographer, and they usually kept it quiet because everything was, you know, T-Max, Plus X, Tri-X, Tactochrome, <laughs> Kodachrome when it was available, Kodak Gold, Kodak Royal Gold, all that stuff. You just, you you're, saw the Fuji film, you're like, hey, I'm not <laughs> you You'd um, be run out of town. <laughs> What I thought was interesting is like the first time I tried, uh, I tried, a, might have been Superior. I don't remember, I don't remember what it was at the time, but I tried one of Fuji's, uh, uh 35 millimeter films. And I'm like, wow, I really like how it produces the greens and the, and the blues in this. But I'm like, yeah, it's a Kodak. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Well, um, th- this is really cool. I know, uh, it's pretty crazy that you have this. Elevation, uh, elevation can can change your exposure. So I can I can I can only imagine like somebody that's like in Colorado, you know, where where the elevation is very high, where somebody would have to make some serious adjustments to to exposing that image. So um, that's uh, that is pretty crazy. So uh, we now we kind of know the gist of like how to expose this and stuff like that. I guess. When you're metering, I mean, are you still kind of incorporating like um, like your zone system? Like if you have like, for example, the the uh, George Washington estate um, in Mount Mm -hmm. Vernon. So that is like a super, super white house, not the White House. But um, yeah, but when you when you um, photograph that and did you go and use the zone system and say, you know, that's definitely going to be like in zone eight or something along those lines. Like how did you go about, um, metering that particular shot or in in shots in general? So with uh, Richard Moss's work, you know, he, a lot of his molten with all this stuff, if I remember correctly, was, uh, in overcast conditions. Um, Mm -hmm. Generally, it's recommended not to do overcast, but I think with the work he was doing, it was kind of a 
light overcast of a hazy sunshine. And there's actually, I've never actually tried it myself, but obviously his work proves that it can be done. Mm. It can still produce the infrared effect. Uh, it's just a little, slightly less contrast. And I think that's probably part of the reason why he chose that time of the year. Cause there's also, you know, stronger vegetation and it, yeah. it kind of, it, the reduction in the contrast can help out a little bit with the, uh, the exposure latitude. Mm. The thing about aerochrome is it has almost no exposure latitude at all. Yeah. I think, well, I think it's worth maybe a half a stop if you're lucky. Yeah. So you have to make sure your exposures are absolutely spot on and you have to make sure that, uh, when you're shooting. So if you shoot in the shadows, you're going to blow either. If you want to get your shadows exposed, you're going to blow out your highlights. Yeah, completely. If you shoot for your highlights, you're going to completely negate, excuse the pun, all your shadows, and there will be there will be nothing there. So just like with the, it's almost like slide film, but I would say the closest analogy would be like Velvia fifty. But even Velvia fifty has a little bit more exposure latitude than than Aerochrome. Right. So <clears throat> typically, um, if you're shooting on a nice sunny day, even for some clouds in the sky, it's fine. Sunny sixteen is usually the best place to start because it. Like I said, I mean, with the with the, with the Mount Vernon shot, that's essentially what I did. And I just did my exposure compensation for a higher F-stop, mm-hmm. my polarizer, you know, the filter, all that stuff. But beyond that, um, yeah, you just have to make sure your exposures are actually absolutely spot on. Yeah. If, and because it's a highly contrasty film, I got lucky with that shot because the because of the angle of the sun and the way it was hitting, it had some reflection of light hitting from the grass that was bouncing up and helped naturally kind of fill in the shadows a little bit for the trees. So that's why I was able to get the detail in it. Um, and that's why it's usually recommended to shoot, uh, you know, at high, when you have a high sun, mm-hmm. my very first time shooting four by five aerochrome was actually late afternoon. It was, uh, great falls, Virginia. And I figured let's do an infrared shot of the falls. And I should have done it in the middle of the afternoon when it was sun was high, but I figured, Ah, I shouldn't be too bad. The sun will be in the correct direction. You know, I won't have much in the way of shadows. The shot didn't turn out. It was not usable at all. I mean, I, I scanned it in. I messed around with it for as long as I possibly could. And it was just, uh, it was poorly exposed. It was uneven exposures all over. It was, it was just a complete mess. Interesting. So, and that was like, so that was later in the day. So it's, yeah, it's typically typically I'd say early to early to mid early to I'd say mid to late morning to early to mid afternoon is usually going to be your best time. Gotcha. It won't work at night. You just won't get anything from it. And um, yeah, so <clears throat> that's that's usually works. Now you can use to an extent. So I know something else is probably going through people's minds. You can use to an extent uh, neutral density filters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would only recommend them for graduated work. So if mm-hmm. like uh, there's a shot on my Instagram feed, it's actually one of my favorite photos of the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. And mm-hmm. it was part of a series that I've been working on. I've actually documented the D.C. area with this with aerochrome. Mm-hmm. And the problem I had was my exposures would have been fine for the, the monument, the water, and the trees, but the sky was going to get blown out. The clouds were going to get blown out. So what I ended up using is I ended up using a, um, a soft-edged uh, neutral density filter to cut down the exposure a little bit, and it worked in that case. Okay. Uh, I talked to Dean. I talked to Dean about this, and it's like let's say wanted to do like a really long exposure. There's only, in his estimation, there's really only one type of infrared, folks. Me, um, 
neutral yeah. density filter that would work. And it's a Schneider brand. No relation, by the way. Um, <laughs> I was about to ask that, too. <laughs> yeah. It's a Schneider brand uh, neutral density filter, and it's specifically stated for IR work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're $260 or something like that, so they're, they're oh, very, wow. very pricey. Seems confident that that's the only filter that would really work. Um, mm-hmm. I've not... Not not invested in that. Um, so for anyone that's living in Colorado, where they're probably already shooting at maybe a 200 ISO or maybe even lower, mm-hmm. that's actually a benefit for them because you know the slower ISO means they could they could fiddle around a little bit more with uh, long exposures. But uh, okay. like I said, neutral graduated filters are fine if you just need to balance out your exposure a little bit, but mm-hmm. they're not really going to help cut down the light. It just won't work. Ian says it just it doesn't you don't get good results. It just pulls the infrared will pass right through the filter regardless of what you got there it'll just blow up the image gotcha yeah and i think that's the and i think that's a very common characteristic of um slide film because like general slide film only has like maybe two or three stops of dynamic range and and so for people that are wondering uh exposure latitude and dynamic range are not the same um, so dynamic range is the number of stops that you can have from your shadows all the way up to your highlights. So like when we have like, uh, E6, when we're talking about traditional slide film, um, you know, that's, that's what you're talking about. And then when you have exposure latitude, exposure latitude is more along the lines of like, you're, you, you're kind of off on your exposure and you know, how much space do you have to, to correct, um, after the shot has been taken and all that stuff, right? W- would you say that's pretty accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. that's really yeah, accurate. Okay. And and uh, I think there's a point I was going to make about that. Oh, you talked about earlier about the zone system. Yeah, the zone system it can help a little bit uh, mm-hmm. with terrachrome, but just because of the fact that the dynamic range and the exposure latitude is pretty built. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not really viable. Yeah, uh, I mean it's I not something it's I've been willing to tinker with. But because uh, the other the other the thing to understand about the zone system, it's not just a matter of figuring out your exposure mm-hmm. with uh, when you're shooting it. Because I hate to say it, but any I know this is a film film podcast, but any DSLR with matrix or evaluative metering can get essentially what the zone system would actually calculate. Mm-hmm. The thing the zone system is it's it's about half of it is what you're actually metering for when you're there. The other half of it is when you're developing it. Mm-hmm. And zone system was predominantly made, uh, used for black and white because you could control your 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 development. Everyone uh-huh. knows that. Yeah. You know your shadows develop first, and then your highlights come later. So if you mm-hmm. have a situation where you need to cut back on your development for your highlights, you just cut back on your development time. Gotcha. You can't really do that with Aerochrome. Ah, uh, okay. Not, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Cool. So, um. <laughs> One other little caveat that um, I, I was reading through these notes that had, Dean had given um, us. And uh, for those that want to run this through a camera that um, you have to be very careful with the cameras that you select, uh, especially if you're mm-hmm. going to just shoot this in like a 35 millimeter, if you can get your hands on it in 35 millimeter, um, you want to make sure that the camera that you have does not have a window in it because i know there's some designs that do have um the where you can see the the speed and all that stuff on the canister but that is just enough for infrared to bounce around inside of the camera and uh, um and actually fog your film um and then the other thing and is that um 
a lot of the advanced uh, cameras, uh, like I think I want to say it was like the EOS 1N maybe. I can't remember exactly. I may be wrong. But uh, a lot of them do have, when it goes to the auto advance, that it does use infrared to go to the next frame so that it's very precise. Right. So you by using that, that infrared will actually fog your, uh, your uh, aerochrome. So it does not affect normal film because that film is not sensitive to that spectrum of light. But when it comes to aerochrome, it is. So that that's something that uh, Dean was, he did a very good job on warning me about that. So luckily... Mm-hmm. I shoot with a Mamiya Seven, so I don't think I'm going to have any problems uh, with no, with that in I mind. Think it'll be okay. Yeah. So generally, with like a a um, fully manual camera, you shouldn't run. It shouldn't have any major issues with that. But that's something that um, that he did mention in that. So um, in the processing, I guess how how do you do your your do you process your own E6 or do you have it sent off to a lab or anything like that? Um, I do, and I just mm-hmm. uh, just real quickly, I wanted to touch on touch on oh, yeah, the um, with the with the cameras because I, I can think of a few other questions that I've actually been asked in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, if it, essentially, if it has an auto advance feature, don't touch it for infrared work. But mm-hmm. more than likely, it's going to have that infrared sensor on it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, a couple things that you know someone might ask about is DX uh, coding. I've had people ask me if that can uh, interfere with it. No, it won't. Because okay. uh, DX coding is basically just uh, it's using electrical contacts. If you, whenever next time you open up a digital camera that has DX coding, and where you load the film, you might see a couple of, of copper pins sticking out. Yep. Those are uh, those those are what's used to read the DX code. So it's an, it's an electrical read, so it won't affect infrared film. Okay. But cool. that being said, uh, most manual cameras don't have DX coding on them, so that's just one thing to keep in mind. Now, the camera I used when I shot my 35-millimeter work was a Canon AE-1 program. <clears throat> and what I did with that, just to be on the safe side, is I ordered a um, light seal kit off of uh, Amazon, and I just redid all the light seals. Mm. So that, that ensured that I would have a good proper seal. There wouldn't be any light leaps. Uh, something else I also did, not the easiest thing to do in the dark. Uh, if you're doing it in a dark closet, a little bit easier. If you're trying to do it in a in a dark bag, very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I would take electrical tape, and then what I would do is I actually tape over all the scene points just to be on the extra on the extra safe side. Unlikely that would be needed, but it's one of those things that it can't hurt. You're right. Just right. to keep any any strenuous light leaks from coming out. They do also recommend uh, that when you're shooting, you cover up the eyepiece. I don't usually. Haven't had any issues, but I mean, it also depends on where you're shooting. Mm. Um, one other note in terms of exposure: don't shoot with the sun in the shot because that will blow off the image. You'll get some pretty funky effects. Now, if you want to go for that oh, effect, okay, you know that's fine. But typically, uh, you want to keep the sun. Uh, you want to make sure the sun is angled away from mm. the infrared film, so preferably behind yourself. Okay. There's another example of shooting into the sun that I actually did with uh, Dean's found found some sort of an infrared type film that's actually uh, negative only, it's not aerochrome. Mm-hmm. And the day I went out shooting with it, I decided to take a shot directly into the sun and it produced a fairly interesting effect. I still got an infrared style effect that it blew out a lot. So it's, if anyone wants to see it, it's on my Instagram page. Cool. Um, in terms of development, <clears throat> uh, I usually do it at home. It's just easier mm-hmm. uh, for me. So I used to shoot, I used to develop in C40, uh, C41. Mm-hmm. It will produce a negative. You'll get a little bit more detail, a little bit less contrast, and a little less saturation with C41. Interesting. But 
you're not going to get a, an expanded exposure latitude or dynamic range uh, like you would with normal negative film. It's still going to have that extremely low latitude and range. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually said this then because I know the big thing everyone says, they're all afraid of shooting and developing uh, E6 because you know they always say color temperatures are always extremely sensitive. Uh, anyone that's thinking about getting into color film developing, get a Su-Vid. Uh, very useful contraption, so worthy investment. Mm. And basically, it'll keep your water temperatures very consistent. And ever since I got that, mm. I've had no, I've had no issues about maintaining, maintaining any, uh, any temperature control issues or having uh, any color shifts. Oh, so, cool. Um, that particular shot I actually developed in uh, E6. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, and so it, uh, there's another uh, bit of advice that um, Dean had um, mentioned that if you do take this film to a lab uh, to make sure that they don't run it through, and I guess there's not that many E6 machines left out there, but um, uh, definitely not have it run through a machine because a lot of these machines do have infrared to um to, mm-hmm. to be able to monitor the the film that's going through the machine um to you know uh i guess uh some sensory uh, components that are in it and all that stuff so that that is something to be incredibly weary of and to make sure that the lab knows hey this needs to be handled and processed in complete darkness it can't even go through a machine interesting note that some people may not realize um so some labs uh, we'll use infrared goggles to oh, so yeah. see in the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not very common anymore. Um, I know that Kodak used to do that too when they when they'd have their engineers working in the light sensitive areas. They would they would if, if it wasn't infrared film, obviously it wasn't an issue. But they would mm-hmm. have infrared lights and infrared goggles so that way they could actually see in the dark. Um, most labs, it's usually uh, sensors that they use sensors and lights and they use a similar concept so they can see what they're doing. Right. I know the dark room, uh, they, they are specific. They've specifically stated they will develop infrared film and they can do it. I've gone through them. My first few rolls of uh, 35 millimeter had developed through them and great, res- great results, good turnaround time. Mm-hmm. And I've been very happy with them. Okay. Awesome. Sweet. Well, I, I think we've covered pretty much all the basics as far as from, you know, loading it up and um, and and getting it all the way to processing. So, I mean, is, is there anything in there that uh, we may have left out on this? Um, I think if anyone's uh, opting to do their own scanning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes. You know, again, you can only get so much out of the uh, you can only get so much out of the film just because of the dynamic range and the latitude. But yeah. uh, I, I use a. Uh, and be 800 and you know i guess i mean most of my you know scratch all my shots that i posted have been scanned on that if um you have a situation where you know the shot is pretty good but you're hoping for maybe just a little bit more dynamic or like a little bit more latitude in the shadows one option would be to, to you could attempt to have a um drum scan done of the of the, uh, of the shot i haven't done it yet because i honestly don't know how it, it would work mm-hmm. but you know my understanding is the drum scan uh should be able to yield a little bit better results out of the shadows but I, I can't make any promises what it is good for though is if you get a shot you really really like and someone wants to get a very large print of it mm-hmm. you're going to get a much better <clears throat> much better enlargement capability out of a drum scan than you would with a flatbed scanner oh yeah for sure for sure. Yeah, I, I've had some four by five um, slide uh, on a drum scan 
and uh, the detail and the that you get a in the sharpness and then the detail that you get out of the shadows and stuff like that um, are just mm-hmm. absolutely phenomenal. So, um, well, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's kind of turn back a little bit uh, on some of your work. So you said that you have done um, like, have you done any kind of like exhibitions with this stuff or like any gallery work with all the, with these images that you've done? Um, not extensively. I've done okay. a little bit of, I've had well, mostly private sales. You know, I've, I've had some collectors and people have purchased it. I'm trying to get it exhibited, uh, especially around, especially my work around the DC area. Uh, mm-hmm. Because for, I mean, for anyone who's not an infrared shooter, their reaction regardless of where they are is usually their jaws drop when they see the work because they're just completely stunned by it. Um, DC people, the purpose of my project that I was doing is, you know, we live around the area. You know, we see the National uh, Mall all the time. I drive past, I see the Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Monument, and people just, you know, shrug and just like, you know, it is what it is. So the whole purpose behind my project was to be able to uh, showcase you know, an area and show it in a different, piece the pun, uh, a different light. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been, that's been my goals. I would like to get it uh, exhibited. Just my work in general, I would, uh, you know, I'm trying to get it exhibited locally, uh, you know, starting to submit it into uh, different contests online and whatnot. But um, that's the goal right now. But aside from private collectors, I haven't done too much other than Instagram. Okay, cool. No, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent, uh, project because I mean, yeah, I mean the, we, we take the things for granted that's around us all the time. And, uh, especially for something like DC, I mean, you know, for somebody like me, I'm going, oh man, the white house and the, you know, the, the monuments and, uh, all this amazing stuff. And, you know, for somebody that lives around that all the time, it's like, okay, great. You know? (laughs) So uh, I, I could imagine that would be a very, very cool um uh exhibition where people can see um where they live and as you said in a different light i think that's brilliant i would love to see something like that so keep me posted on that i'd love to i would love to see that so yeah cool uh well so that is pretty much everything uh that you guys would need to know to kind of get your feet wet when it comes to uh aerochrome and um Mark, how do we find you? Do you have a website? Do you have uh, an Instagram? Well, you clearly have an Instagram because we've been talking on it. But uh, how about the listeners? Uh, where where can they follow you? So I'm in the process of trying to get a website up. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a, uh, a website address that's easier than MarkSchneiderPhotography.com. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, there's a fair amount of Mark Schneiders and there's a fair amount of Mark Schneiders who are also photographers. So I'm <laughs> kind of limited on options. So at the moment, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of an idea. Um, what I can't tell you is I am on Instagram. It's Mark Schneider Photo. Um, I do have a Flickr page. Don't use it too much. But uh I also am on Facebook. Uh, it's Mark Schneider Photography. And the easiest way to spot me is I believe my profile photo should be a self-portrait of me, black and white, wearing a Washington National shirt, <laughs> sitting below a quote from the FDR Memorial. Oh, so cool. if you find that, and I'm based out of the Washington, D.C. area, so it should be fairly easy to find. But uh, yeah, Instagram I'm on fairly regularly and Facebook I'm on fairly regularly. I am going to get a website up. I just got to think of a, <laughs> I got to think of a good a good web address uh, and a name for the site. But uh, yeah, the easiest way to get in touch with me would either be through Facebook or through Instagram. Awesome. So um, what I normally do with uh, our interviews uh, generally right before we hit the uh, big red button um, is throughout the interview, 
what question did I not ask that you would have liked me to have asked? Mm, I'd have to say you've been pretty, you've been pretty thorough. Um, <laughs> I know, I know a lot of people, they get intimidated because they see the price point, they, mm. they, you know, it's expensive and whatnot. Um, you know, if you want to try and shoot it, shoot it. I mean, it's only going to be around for so long. And yeah. I mean, I know because I belong to some infrared photography groups on Facebook and other pages. And, you know, from a digital perspective, it's, <clears throat> it's possible to mimic it. Um, not very easily. And, yeah. you know, the results I've seen, I've seen some people get very, very close to their own look, but they can't quite nail it. So, yeah. you know, if you want to try it, try it, you know, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun experience. Um, especially when you nail that shot, just like any other type of film part, when you pull that nail, that shot off the reel and you take and you know, you're holding it up and it's all dripping wet and you're like, ah, I nailed that shot. And you're just really happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially when you nailed infrared. Um, anyone that's considering doing portrait work, I would definitely recommend talking to Dean Benisi about because that's what he tends to focus upon. And that's what he focuses most heavily on is portrait work. Mm. There are some, so there are some characteristics with uh, infrared with aerochrome that are very fairly unique to it. Anyone that shot Lomochrome Purple mm, yes. will understand what I'm about to explain because Lomochrome Purple was designed as a faux infrared. It was designed as kind of like an homage to aerochrome. Yeah, you're going to get unique color responses depending on the type of clothing that's being worn. Now, it's not something I typically pay attention to because I don't typically photograph people. <clears throat> But depending on what kind of color the person's clothing is, um, you could end up something that might be a darker color might end up becoming a vibrant yellow mm. or blues could come out completely different. Um, when you're shooting, especially when you're doing portrait work, uh, if I remember correctly, I believe Dean told me people's lips come out green. So typically, and I, you'd have to ask him because he could explain this better. I believe you'd have to use green lipstick. Uh, whether it's male or female, doesn't matter. But you'd have to use green lipstick to be able to offset that that look. And so if you're trying to get the aerochrome look, but you don't want people to have funky colored lips, mm. then you'd have to have them use that kind of uh, lipstick. Uh, um, okay. I think I think that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and the main thing, like I said, is don't shoot it with the sun in, in the shot. I mean, you can. Yeah. I mean, you might get a cool effect, especially if you're looking for that kind of cool effect. Uh, right. I don't typically recommend it, though. But... Mm. You know, uh, photography is a subjective. So whatever the whatever the photographer is interested in doing, you know, it's all about trial and error. Sweet. All right. Well. Uh, all right. Well. Um. Thank you, Mort, for for coming onto the show and and demystifying uh, Aerochrome for all of us. And I even learned a lot. And I'm going to go out and shoot this role this weekend. I am so stinking excited. And I and it's funny you did mention that. Um. You know, to just you know, get it and shoot it. And that's why I bought two rolls because I know I'm probably going to mess up that first roll. And, um, I feel a little less intimidated by it, by just simply, you know, just learning really. And, uh, you know, failure is a, is a thing that naturally happens, especially in film photography. Uh, and I think you just have to be that kind of person to say, you know what, I'm okay with failure. I learned from it and I'm not going to make that mistake again. So, um, I, agree. I, I apologize for interrupting. I just, I just had a brainwave. Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing I would recommend is if anyone's interested in trying it, but they don't want to necessarily drop down the cost. Uh, Dean, I don't know how for how much longer, but Dean does have 
uh, it, I, you heard me mention earlier in the podcast, uh, it's called, he basically called it color infrared alternative. So uh-huh. it's a C41 only, do not process it in E6. He says it does not work, mm-hmm. but it produces very similar results. Slightly more of a greenish hue in the blues, but I've actually shot it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting film. So it's a little bit cheaper. I think it usually sells at about $10, $15 cheaper than Aerochrome. And it's a little more forgiving, but not by much. So it's a good film to go with if you want to get started with it, but you don't want to necessarily drop down the money on uh, shooting aerochrome. Uh, the other last thing I say is anyone that um, that's shooting with this, whether it's one twenty or four by five, double and triple check. Make sure you got all your settings correct. Make sure you got everything in place because uh, in, in a little story about the uh, Mount Vernon shot that was actually a redo. Um, first shot and anyone that's shot a uh, medium format or large format will understand this. We get, you know, as we get questions all the time, oh, what's that camera? Is that digital? Is that film? What is it? Oh, I can't believe you still shoot it. Mm. So I'm standing there. It was a very, very busy day. There's a lot of people coming through and this uh, family of four, you know, came up and they saw me and the kids were asking me a lot of questions and I was happy to answer the questions. Apparently I gave them a better education than they got from the, uh, the tour guide. Um, <laughs> They, they seemed pretty enthusiastic. Wow, what's this? What that? What's that? Well, the problem was is I wasn't paying attention, and when I had everything set, I had my f-stop set, my shutter was set correctly, everything was focused, everything was perfect. But because they distracted me, I forgot to compensate for my filters, and my shot was underexposed by two stops. Oh so, man! As if, and it didn't occur to me until afterwards. So then I, you know, I was like, all right, well, good thing I took an extra shot. And the sheet is twelve. About right now, it's twelve dollars a sheet. So yeah. that was a twelve dollar mistake I made. Yeah. Oh so, man, that's I, I. I know that pain. I, I know that feel. <laughs> it's, it's painful. So yeah, yeah, when you guys are shooting with this stuff, just make sure you know. Make sure your settings are correct. Make sure you get your filters in place. If you have to manually meter everything, make sure you compensate for uh, your filter factors. I use a. I forgot the name of the app, but. An exposure compensation app on Android. <clears throat> I use a light meter app. That's actually what I use to meter most of the time is my is my cell phone. Yeah. And you know, Sony 16 works really well, but definitely make sure you're you're compensating for your altitude. Make sure you're compensating for your um, for your filters as well, because like I said, no exposure latitude on this thing. So you definitely want to make sure your exposures are dead on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Well, Mark, thank you again. Uh, for those that are interested in getting in touch with uh, Mark, again, follow him, Mark Schneider Photo, on Instagram. And also, um, Dean Benici's uh, website is uh, www.benici, and that's B-E-N-N-I-C-I dot net. And he has a contact Yes, he has a contact info uh, page where you can reach out to him, where you can get all the pricing and stuff like that. Um, his pricing adjusts, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't have all the pricing uh, here in front of me now, but he's more than help, helpful uh, with getting all that over to you. So I highly recommend reaching out to him. Uh, Mark was saying earlier it was about $12 a sheet um, uh, for uh, that film. So uh, reach out to him there. There's also a great article that I will uh, post in the show notes. Uh, emulsive.org uh, did an interview. It is I am Dean Benici, and this is why I shoot film. There are some amazing portraiture works here, and uh, and he also gives a great breakdown um, as far as uh, you know how the the characteristics, everything that we've talked about 
uh, in these images, and they're phenomenal images. So uh, we'll post the links there. So, uh, Mark, I just want to say thank you for coming out uh, onto the show and and help uh, out of your busy schedule and uh, uh, talking about all this stuff about Aerochrome. Normally, we close out this episode with uh, saying, shoot some film, dang it. You think you can help me out with that? Sure. All right. All right, everybody. Well, thanks again and shoot, shoot some, some film, film, dang it. Dang it.